Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, we are doing um, fun passages today. We're in Christmas, and what is more joyful than talking about these infancy narratives? So today, our first Sunday of Christmas, we are looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 40. And this, as you recall, we had done in our Advent some work on Isaiah. And so I think the first thing we can do about this passage is to tie it into the Hebrew Bible. So I'm going to ask Alan to do that for us. Well, you know, as I mentioned when we talked about the Magnificat, um, the infancy narratives in Luke's Gospel maybe surprisingly have strong resonances with the Hebrew Bible. Uh, we, we saw in the Magnificat how um, Mary's song ties in with the prophetic vision of God's um, deliverance. And here we have something kind of surprising because um, in this passage, uh, this is the only place in the whole gospel tradition that explicitly quotes from the section of Leviticus that pertains to the sacrificial law. Only here in all the gospel tradition. Now, the other gospels obviously quote Leviticus 19.18, right? That's, that's kind of common. Uh, and there is, um, there is a, a reference to the sacrifice that the leper whom Jesus cleansed was to make to, uh, Jesus told him basically go to the, present yourself to the priest and make the, the prescribed sacrifice. But this is the only place in the gospel tradition that actually quotes from that portion of Leviticus. And I find that interesting because, and it's quoted as the law of Moses. Joseph and Mary are presented as, you know, the this um, devout Jewish couple living, quote unquote, according to the law of Moses. Mm-hmm. So I think this is important because again, we assume Luke was written for the Gentiles and here we have a very Jewish flavor to this uh, episode. And I think that's really interesting. And I was thinking when I come to this or initially came to this, I would not have said, have seen that that law from Leviticus and nor would I have been thinking in terms of Old Testament because we're celebrating Christ here. So we're thinking about New Testament ideas. So, whoa. This all of a sudden um, is giving us a whole new context that I was not fully aware of. So. Well, and I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll let you look up my sleeve a little bit, peek up my sleeve here. I'll give you a secret to this. The Nestle Aland Greek New Testament has extensive side notes, and it it italicizes all Old Testament quotes, and it gives you not only. Um, uh, citations in the side notes; it also gives you allusions, and then at the end. There is a, a comprehensive index of all of those. So if you're looking for how does the New Testament use a certain passage from the Old Testament, you flip to the back of your Nestle Alon Greek New Testament, and there you have it. There it's, you have it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so that's that's just a just a that's uh, giving you a chance to look peek up the peek look at the cards I hold in in, uh, in my sleeve. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and what a great tool, right? Um, yeah. That we can do that and. Uh, I think I'm not alone, and I think many of our listeners probably don't go there first and, right. and, and don't see this. But 
I think one of the brilliant things we're doing in this podcast is we're looking at the kind of the wisdom of the Revised Common Lectionary. So we're seeing this progression. So we've been reading Isaiah. We've been, mm-hmm. been looking for this kind of reflection back to the Hebrew Scriptures and then forward to the New Testament. And, and this does it here again. Mm-hmm. So here we have this wonderful um, Th- this wonderful reference to those, those Hebrew scriptures, and I think, interestingly enough, um, and important, it's 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 really showing that um, that broad over overview of God's purpose. Yeah, well, you know? as I said before, with the Magnificat, this is Luke's way of writing the story of Jesus into the story of God's continuing yeah. work, and and which, of course, continues with the story of God's work through the church. Yeah, yeah. So it's just awesome. So. Uh, the next place we go then is, um, as we're moving into this, is we initially introduced to these characters um, who would be unlikely witnesses. So tell us a little about yeah. these, these folks. Simeon and Anna, we don't hear anything about them anywhere else. We don't know anything about them except for what we find here. And, and you know, um, Simeon was just a really great, older, devout Jewish man. And um, whether he had any official connection with the temple, it doesn't say. Uh, but he just—he's just—he is a devout man. Anna, you know, is also characterized uh, as a particularly devout Jewish woman, and. Um, you get the impression both of them were older because Simeon says, okay, now I'm ready to die. And, uh, and Luke tells us how long uh, Anna had been a widow. Had been a widow, right. And, and so, um, um, it, and again, I think it's interesting because Luke really wants to focus in on the significance of Jesus for those who would be overlooked, mm-hmm. those who would be just kind of ignored. And I would think Simeon and Anna would be two of those people who would have just been overlooked. And yet they, Luke points out, they're people who are exemplars of true piety right. in Israel. Right. They're the people that get it. Yes. Like, yes. I, uh, you know, interesting. I think there's also something telling about that we don't see them again. You know? Yeah. They're yeah. here that their only their sole purpose is to bear witness exactly. to the significance How of the birth of Jesus. Is that? How interesting yeah. is that? Yeah, and and right. when we talk about the broad body of people that will follow Jesus and be part of it, that these it's it's not about this one other great individuals that come through, but about this this body of witnesses yes. um, throughout time. So I think that's yeah. pretty telling of these two. Yeah, yeah very cool. Sure, sure. All right, so let's move on. Um, one of the beautiful things outlined here is Alan's work with with the scripture itself, and so one of the things he talks about is Simeon's relationship to the Holy Spirit. So yeah, tell us about well, about that. in in all of the of the infancy narratives, Luke has several things he wants to do. He wants to show that Jesus' birth is in accord with with the purposes of God's redemptive purposes with Israel all along. The promises made to David and Abraham, um, and 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 the hopes expressed by the prophets. So we we've seen those clear resonances. Um, but one of the things that Luke does in in the birth narratives is that. Um, he he characterizes the people who sing these songs of praise or the or the people who bear witness to Jesus the significance of Jesus birth as uh, definitely uh, spirit filled spirit led um, they're 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 acting and speaking under the influence of the spirit you know 
as you say this, spirit, when I think a song, what could be more spiritual than bursting out in Absolutely. song? Absolutely. And so, Absolutely. yeah. So what song of praise. Burst out in song. Yes, so. indeed. Yes, indeed. And so with Simeon, not only was he righteous and devout, but Luke says the Holy Spirit rested on him, which is an interesting phrase that's not a usual that's not usual for how do you how you describe someone who is spiritual but the holy spirit rested on him and then it had been revealed to him by the holy spirit that he would not die until before seeing the lord's messiah and finally it says that he went to the temple in the spirit or as the new rsv translates it guided by the spirit so it's very clear that it's almost luke is almost going overboard to to show us that simeon is is definitely uh being inspired by the spirit in the things he's doing interesting interesting yeah i uh sorry when you jumped into that it reminded me of the visualizations of the resting of the holy spirit they take this mm-hmm. later on in acts of course and and luke also writes acts as what that looks like right. to have the fire rest tongues on of fire resting tongues on of fire resting on and and it reminded me of that when you were talking about it and always how that's such a strange image to see it someone someone draw it out and yet here it is again and it's but it's not just that then it, you know how it moves beyond just resting but revealed to and guided by mm-hmm. and it's kind of mm-hmm. totality as is, yes. is it is it compels him to. Yes. And the idea is, you know, the idea is that Simeon is someone who is definitely in tune with God and his life matches that. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's exactly how, how I, well spoken, I guess. That's what and, and yet, and say. yet, <laughs> and yet he would have been easily overlooked at the temple yeah. complex. Yes. No one would have known. No one would have noticed him. would not him. have been an, a, yeah. a particularly noticeable figure. Yeah. Oh, yes. And okay, so we're moving on there. Um, and with Simeon, and you say, look, not only was he d- uniquely devout, but he was looking for the consolation of yeah, Israel. Yeah. And tell us about this. Well, and this is Luke's description of, again, it, and it's a way to, d- to characterize Simeon's piety. You know, this is something important that he's looking for the consolation of Israel. Now, the consolation of Israel, this is a phrase that this is the only place this occurs is in the whole Bible. It doesn't occur in the Septuagint. It doesn't occur in the Greek New Testament anywhere else. That is remarkable. This is the only place that phrase occurs. I'm going to interrupt you for a minute. Do you think this is something that Luke devised, or do you think this may come through the oral tradition to some extent? I think Luke is composing this, yes. I think okay. Luke is responsible for it, but he's responsible for it under the influence of the prophets, especially Deutero-Isaiah, and and third Isaiah, the the you know here we have this this is this is where the connection mm-hmm. with the Advent texts that we were looking at really becomes clear, because um, the Greek word paraklesis and the verb parakaleo are used throughout the Septuagint translation of of the passages of Isaiah that we've been looking at and others. Um, that uh, express the hope of God's deliverance mm-hmm. for the people of Israel. It is that he will, and I mean, the first, the first verse of the second Isaiah is Isaiah 41, comfort, comfort my people. And it's the mm-hmm. verb parakaleo in the Septuagint. So I think Luke would have been aware of that. And I think Luke was consciously framing, you know, again, 
did Mary sing a song? Yeah, I think she did. But Luke probably was, was responsible for the final form. Did Zachariah sing a song? Yes. Luke was probably responsible for the final form. Did Simeon sing a song? Yes. yes. But I think Luke is responsible for the final form. Mm-hmm. And Luke is consciously uh, shaping his report of these songs with reference to the hopes that God would comfort or console his people. And so th- this is, I think, a very important phrase in the infancy narratives of Luke's is, gospel. I think this is very yeah. important. I'm this, hoping everyone hears that. This hears is this. Luke's summary of the hopes that are expressed uh, in the prophets, especially in Isaiah, uh, for, for God's mm-hmm. redemption. I'm going to take you off on a tangent for a moment, only because this occurred to me as we're th- talking about Luke a- as the as a writer, and and it requires someone with your expertise in the Greek to really talk to it. Is his Greek, uh, from what I understand, is a little bit more sophisticated than the other gospelers? Yes. You read you read Mark's gospel, for example. You read John's gospel, for example, and the Greek, the, the grammatical structure of the Greek, the the vocabulary used is is fairly elementary. Uh, you, it's almost like you're reading Septuagint Greek, and the Septuagint is a very literal translation of the Hebrew. And if you know Hebrew, you know that the, the grammatical structure of, most he, of Hebrew is fairly simple as well. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, in the New Testament, you have, you have Gospels like John and Mark that, that um, you, could almost, you could almost say that they, they're, they're, their Greek is, is just almost drawn directly, especially with John's Gospel. It's almost exactly the same as Septuagint Greek. Um, uh, Luke's Greek has a little more uh, of a, I guess you would call, a Greek literary quality to it. Uh, in the New Testament, Hebrews is the most, um, I guess we could say, Greek in its literary character. Yeah, so interesting. And it, it strikes me as he's really, he's really masterful at maybe able to take to take this raw material and, and put it into then this amazing structure. Um, and not only for the book of Luke, not, but also acts. Yes. And so yes, he's, he's in a way he's the, the master, the, the master putting it all together, you mm-hmm. know, and if you're thinking that this has had been oral tradition for so long, um, that this is the story then it just fills out all the, all the mixing. Yeah. And you know, I would say very likely the oral tradition that he received may, may have been in Aramaic. It may have already been translated into Greek, but I think you find Luke's hand Mm -hmm. in the style of the Greek, Mm -hmm. even in the songs. Yeah. Okay. That is actually, I think, really helpful to know. Um, You know, we haven't ever jumped into the historical Jesus movement, and I shouldn't say it, but, you know, there's the whole thing of, well, did they sing the song exactly like they sung the song, and and was this just passed on? And and I I really like what you suggested there, is they probably did sing a song. It may not have looked exactly like like this, because we can see Luke's voice through it. Mm -hmm. We can. And and in the infancy narratives, uh, what's going on is that Luke is consciously uh, framing all of these songs with reference to the hope expressed in the prophets, especially Isaiah, um, that God would restore Israel. And I think that's important to note, that, that the hopes that Luke uses to frame his infancy narrative is that Jesus' birth is, is uh, a fulfillment of the promise that God is going to restore Israel. That is fascinating because <laughs> it, it's fascinating. And it, it really, I, I, think, I think how, 
how we understand this now compared to how as I'll talk later about maybe these reformers looked at this because they, they weren't able to see that hope in this at all. And yet I think that's where, I think that's exactly what Luke wanted us to get. Yes, yes. Because in Luke's gospel, uh, the hope uh, of salvation um, begins with the Jewish people. And it doesn't stay there. It, it's not limited to that, you know. And you already get hints of it in in some of these um, songs that the, the the folks in the infancy narrative sing, that this that the redemption of of Israel is going to extend to the Gentiles as well and include them, um, but it starts there. And for Luke, it's all grounded in in what God began to do with with Abraham and his descendants. Yeah, yeah, and that's huge. And that's where we get that that what I consider to be that more complete reading and understanding where yes. our reformers and I think a lot of our contemporary folks are tending to wanting to pull this out of context and when you put it in a context that's when I'm just I'm so excited and I want to say yes that's it this is exactly who Jesus is With, as revealed here without the foundation of the biblical promise going back to Abraham and especially in the prophets this section of luke's gospel is nonsensical it really doesn't that's, doesn't connect it doesn't connect and there's no yeah. need to have it there and that's one of the things i was thinking about as i was reading this is why is it here do we really need this and yes we do yes, and we do. frankly we also need i think simeon and anna mm-hmm. and we do. had yes, we indeed. had we taken them out we would very much lessen the, the overall the overall story sure mm-hmm. sure yeah sure um so moving on, another piece of this that, that you had talked about um, was the relationship to the law. And that, again, ties us back into this Jewish um, um, Hebrew Bible relationship. But um, I think that's an important piece of this. So tell us about that. Well, it's interesting because um, in this particular episode, um, Jesus' parents are simply identified primarily as Jesus' parents. Jesus' parents. <laughs> And, we and, know that experience. Yeah, right. Yeah, after you, after you have your first child, you know, you nobody no cares whether you show up. It's just about the baby, <laughs> about right? The baby. Right. So, so Jesus' parents take him to the temple, and the the only way in which they're really characterized in this passage is that they were going to do for him what was customary under the law, and so again, you have this emphasis, interesting emphasis on the Torah, on you know the fact that they're they're uh, fulfilling um, the requirement to redeem the firstborn with a sacrifice at the temple, and so they're presented as a, simply as a devout Jewish couple living according to the Torah, and actually this would have been fairly commonplace. So I guess the, I think what we're meant to see is while it's 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 important to note that they're fulfilling their law and they're following the law. There's nothing special about this. I mean, how many parents would have presented a child at the temple on this day you know and and so you know it's funny because in in you know in you mentioned the uh, the image of of the, the tongues of fire resting on on uh, the apostles heads in in depictions of pentecost well you know i would imagine i haven't looked at the art depicting this episode but i would imagine most of them have show a halo over oh, jesus head of course they do yeah <laughs> i can answer that <laughs> Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, but in, in reality, there would not have been anything like that that would have exactly. distinguished them. Exactly. 
So, so this is again attributed to the insight, the spiritual insight of Simeon and Anna, that they are able to recognize what God is doing through this child. Exactly. Um, And then um, um, you talked a little bit more um, about Jesus, uh, Simeon taking Jesus into his arms and singing that song of praise at this point. Um, There's two things that that, um, Simeon emphasizes. He says that obviously that that he has seen the salvation which God has prepared for all to see. But then we also have a very, I think, a very clear allusion to Isaiah uh, because he's going to be light for the Gentiles. Well, that's Isaiah 49.6. And he's going to be glory for the people of Israel. Well, again, you've got Isaiah 45. For the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people will see it together. So again, you have some very clear ties, I think, in Simeon's song to the promises in Isaiah. What a what an amazing song. Um, I'm just thinking of mm-hmm. all that goes on in these just few little verses um, of, of 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 bringing all of God's people kind of. Well, and how together. many how many pious, devout Jewish men who who were looking for the consolation of Israel right would have seen in the in the salvation of the Lord a light for the Gentiles as well as glory for the people of Israel well not very many right <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean, we, so you know we do have references to God for all people in 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 Hebrew scripture but yeah. that still is not the mindset it's, in Jesus day that seemed exactly. not to be that was not something there, that they there were was there was not this kind of broader expansive mission exactly exactly yeah. so yeah. this is huge this yeah. is actually a really huge huge thing to say out and it would have been alarming perhaps to others that would have heard it um had had there been others around right we, we don't know that. well i i don't know i think i think the implication would have been you know if we if we if we pull in the story of anna that that there were others who were looking for this hope to be fulfilled too there were others who were clued in to the message of isaiah and had listened to the details a little more carefully mm-hmm. and they knew that this was going to yes this may begin with israel but it was going to extend beyond them mm-hmm. so i think you know again this this simeon song is just i think luke's Way of summarizing uh, what the prophets looked forward to in terms of the restoration of Israel, which was the righteousness, uh, social justice, and mm-hmm, peace for mm-hmm, all people. Mm-hmm. And then we move on, um, and, and uh, Simeon uh, gives another message to Mary. And this is really interesting because he talks about the rising and the falling of many of Israel. And this becomes a big thing for our reformers. This mm. is one of the things, this is the thing they will kind of kind of latch on to. So um, tell us about that. Well, I think as I think about it, it I read that as Simeon is under, understands what Jesus's fate is going to be. You know, he rejoices that this child represents God's fulfillment of his salvation. But at the same time, he knows, I think he, he has enough wisdom to know that anybody who came to fulfill the promise of peace and justice and freedom for the least and the lost and the left out would reveal the inner thoughts of the people. And um, including antagonistic thoughts right. on the part of those for whom that message was a threat because anybody who's in power anybody who's in anybody who has wealth social power or any kind of status like that when someone like jesus comes along and says god's going to upend things and god's going to you know cast down the powerful from their thrones and lift up the lowly that's not a message they want to hear that is not a <clears throat> message they want to hear and our human nature is going to going to yeah. automatically they're going to 
rally up against him. I mean, that's obvious. Again, I think this speaks to the wisdom that Simeon brings to this because he understands that that message of of restoration uh, in which the lowly are lifted up um, is one that's not going to be popular. And so, uh, he, uh, you know, when he says a sword is going to pierce your own heart, I think he is, it's almost like a foretelling uh, or a foreshadowing of Jesus' death. Yeah, yeah. And we don't really know how Mary responds to this, obviously. Um, well, again, at the end of all of this, you know, Luke says, Mary treasured these things in her heart. Yeah. And I, I, I think Luke, I think Mary would have been the source for Luke's um, writing of the infancy narratives. Yeah, well, very true, very true, yeah. right? Um, um, I suppose one could ask, would he have been, would he have known Mary, potentially? I think potentially he could have met her, yeah. And how interesting, yeah. Um, how, yeah, how... Uh, to hear her story, mm-hmm. you know, at the time that he might have. Um, I think she would have yeah. been advanced in age, but uh, right. and again, this is a this is a hypothetical. Oh, There's no way we can prove friends. any of this. <laughs> we don't but have proof. <laughs> using our using our hopefully educated imagination, I don't. I mean, if if Luke made it to Jerusalem and Luke actually, as I mentioned before, if he actually uh, collaborated with Matthew, perhaps. Uh, in writing his gospel, then why would he not have the opportunity to meet Mary? Right. Well, and we know this is, you know, we tend to think of this as being so big and vast. This is actually quite a small community when you really Mm -hmm. think about it. These people are going to be in contact with one another. They are going to know one another. I think Mary would have been cared for by the Christian community. I think Mary absolutely would have been cared for. And um, uh, I think that we, that we might underestimate the, the, the the relationships that, that we did have. So this brings us to Anna, and I'm gonna I'm gonna shift gears a little bit because um, I'm gonna I know that Christy has some expertise here, and so uh, explain for us um, your background in the story of Anna. Sure. Well, I've introduced to you that I study Reformation, but I also have a background in women's history, and so um, it's th- she was a character that became very very interesting to me in my work with women's history, which is not as narrow in time, but I do have an overall kind of um, framework for understanding women in history. And um, Anna, um, Anna became particularly interesting because she's one of those characters that I think if we go out on the street, people don't really even know about her. Um, they they know of Simeon and they know of Simeon's song and she's sometimes an afterthought. Oh, and then there's this woman. And I think that Luke includes her um, is highly significant. Um, and it tells us, I think, a lot about um, his theology um, and a lot about his theology to uh, be inclusive of all people. So Anna is, and I think Alan said it already, kind of, if you want to talk about the least, <laughs> who's, yeah. who is the less than a woman? Yeah. Um, a, uh, someone who is living at the temple, someone who is no longer of childbearing years. Now, that's kind of, when we talk about value of women in time, it's it's if you can have children or not, largely, and particularly um, as a whole. Now, there are women that are respected as, particularly in like um, classical Greco-Roman culture, respected for being involved um, in uh, 
in various types of religious ways, uh, places. Um, you know, we always talk about the Vestal Virgins, that kind of thing. So there's a recognition that women can have a spiritual place. And of course, many of these Gentiles that are maybe looking for, for faith guidance are finding that there's different types of, of, of goddesses that there are cults after, like Isis and Demeter. Um, and so we know that women are, within the broader culture, sometimes able to be spiritual. But this, in terms of Jewish tradition, is really not yeah, there. That's that's not, not a factor in the Jewish culture exactly. at all. Exactly. Yeah. So... Again, that could be a call out to Gentiles as a as a as a recognition that you know women could have the spiritual realm, but I th- you know and obviously these people would have all these people would have known these other things existed because any time they would be in contact with Gentiles, they would have been in contact with people kind of seeking wisdom from these things and there's sure. there's all kinds of statues right. and, and oracles um, and those kinds exactly. of things exactly those yeah. things are around they're, they're they're within their sight so and here's anna and they're thinking well okay she has no value really in jewish tradition at all except which is really interesting except we have to respect her as a woman, as the poor and the lowly that we have to take care of. I mean, right. she was a, 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 a wife. She was married, and now she's a widow, and she's been at the temple. And so she has all the virtues that one recognizes. And yet, because she's no longer married, because she's um, you know no longer a virgin, she's no longer of childbearing age, she's kind of passed it up. Mm-hmm. So she's showing her devotion to the temple. And we don't know exactly what she does at the temple, except that she she lives there, basically. Yeah. Um, and she prays, and she prays. But as a woman, she's not really allowed into any of the inner places. Josephus tells us that she's not allowed to be on the women's court. Um, so we don't know what she... She probably is regarded as kind of an odd character. Right. I, I think that's a... You right. know, well, and, and you mentioned that um, that the, the reformers, one of the reformers called her this crazy old lady. And, and imagine the temple hierarchy would have seen her as that. And yet Luke Luke wants to characterize her in a very different way. Right, right. Luke, Luke says, this is a prophet. Now think, and this is where, you know, I think for those of us that are, are women and are ministers and are sometimes that are not, uh, that feel that a lot of... Um, of our traditions as a whole are overlooking women, we're thinking this is the first time we've legitimized in a New Testament a, a woman in a prophet role. Now we have Mary, but Mary is, no matter what we want to say, is being valued for her reproductive war- role. This is Anna, and she's out of reproductive role. This is huge. Mm-hmm. A- and that she's recognized as being one of the two people that, that first identified Jesus as a baby. That's that's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, and, you know, that tradition that, that resists women as prophets is not just one that's a tradition. I mean, it's still very much alive and well today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Women are supposed to keep their mouths shut. Women are supposed to keep their heads covered. <laughs> They're supposed to cater to their husband. Well, she doesn't have a husband. She doesn't right. have a... She doesn't have a man that they identify here as, as taking care of her. No. She is given the power here to to be a prophet in her own right as a female character. which which the fact that she's named a prophetess in in by Luke I think 
he doesn't he doesn't spell out specifically that she's being guided by the Holy Spirit and influenced by the Holy Spirit, but I think that's the implication. I think we're meant to see that no less than Simeon, Anna is 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 living under the influence and and guided by the Holy Spirit as well. Yeah, abs- absolutely, and and she's I guess I think she's not only there to identify Christ, but also is part of this broad theology that Luke that Luke is trying to trying to give us. And maybe I already I already said that, but you know Luke is Luke is trying to make sure everyone everyone comes under the fold. Um, and you know, today uh, uh, sometimes we talk about um, well, a woman can say it if it's controlled by a man, but not in her case. I mean, this is a case; it's just it's really coming from her. She is at this point a single woman. Yeah, I mean, you know, Luke. You know, it may reflect the patriarchal norms of the day, but Luke does want is careful to to say she was a virgin. She was married for seven years, and then she lived as a widow for 84 exactly. years. Exactly. So, so that means, you know, there's no question about her character as a woman. Um, more than that, you know, she spends her time day and night at the temple. Um, Josie, uh, uh, Jer- Joachim Jeremias tells us in his, in his um, book on, on Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, tells us about there was, a, there was a massive distribution of alms, and as a recognized, a widow was a status. It was a social status yes, yes. in Jerusalem at the time. Absolutely. And so yeah. very likely she would, have, she would have benefited from these alms, and so that would have been her livelihood. And yet she chose to spend her days and nights praying in the temple. So, I mean, this is something unique. I mean, you wouldn't even find an Israelite man who would not even the priests would have devoted their whole time to praying every day and night in the temple they would have had other concerns other lives they would have had families they would have been they would have been engaged elsewhere so anna is unique in israel in this respect i think she is and i think you know if i'm thinking about luke's readers um in particular and i think i outlined this pretty well jewish women are going to Jews in general are going to identify with this, this woman. They're going to see her as as devout and, and, and following Jewish expectations. But she's also, I think, a viable character for any Gentiles that would also be reading. Mm-hmm. This is, so it really, I think Luke, the master writer mm-hmm. here, is very cognizant of, I'm reaching Jews, but I'm also reaching Gentiles. Surely, yeah. surely. Yeah, that's right. Well, and one of the things I noticed as I was looking at this um, is when, it's interesting because uh, Luke says that, that Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel and, and Anna was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Yes, yes. And that word lutrosis is also used in Zechariah's Benedictus. So this is a way in which one of the things we see in the, in the infancy narratives is that Luke kind of ties it all together. He does. He and, ties it together. And so Anna's, so Anna's expression of her hopes for the redemption of Israel then tie into Zechariah's Benedictus and tie into the whole theme of the infancy narratives, uh, which again summarizes the hopes for restoration mm-hmm. that Israel held um, in fulfillment of the promises to David and Abraham. And really, I think to me that really is 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 the is the whole uh, function of the infancy narrative in Luke's gospel, and that includes uh, Mary's Magnificat, Zachariah's Benedictus, um, Simeon. Um, you know, Simeon because he sang a song that was also put into the traditional liturgy as the Nunc Dimittis. Right, of course, uh, would have been known. Anna. 
maybe as you said not so much not but so all of much. them in Luke's mm-hmm. narrative contribute to this theme that Jesus represents the long hoped for fulfillment of God's promise to restore his people absolutely yeah yes so we will return um and we're going to talk about all kinds of different things maybe some reformers and maybe a little bit about some ideas about today all right thanks Christy thanks Hello, we're back, and we're just going to head right into talking about today, and I'll pull in some reformers if we, if we think they fit, but we've, we've talked a lot already, um, and I think one of the things that's really interesting to me is we tend to look at our Gospels, um, our, our life of Christ, and in terms of kind of lumping all of the Gospels together, and so we kind of had this single narrative. I mean, we even see that with Calvin, right, when we blend it all together. But I think it's important here to think about that Mark, and we are headed here into the year of Mark, and year B doesn't have an infancy narrative. So we borrow Luke's. Um, I just want Alan, from his expertise in in the New Testament, um, to give us some thoughts about that. Well, and first I'll say I, I agree. I think most people sort of function functionally, they're, they're like Calvin. You know, Calvin doesn't write a commentary on Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He writes one commentary on all three of them. And, um, you know, uh, we just kind of have this idea of there is one Jesus, and we kind of amalgamate the stories we've heard all of our lives into our own picture of Jesus. By contrast... Our, our, our New Testament has four Gospels. Three of them tell a very similar story, but they tell it in different ways. And then, of course, John has, his, has a different story to tell. And one of the things I um, used to say to my seminary students was, you know, in, in reference to this, um, why is it important for us to have four stories of Jesus as opposed to one story of Jesus. And in, in what I used to tell them was, uh, would you rather have the Gospels or would you rather have a, a live video recording of Jesus' entire life? And they would always say the live video. And I said, however, there were lots of people who saw that and didn't get it. But everybody who reads Mark's Gospel understands from the very first verse who Jesus is. True. Mark begins with the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that is that is significant for Mark. So Mark's gospel is all about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and demonstrating that Jesus is the Son of God. And the way in which that happens in Mark's gospel is through Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, Mark's gospel is focused, uh, many people have noted that uh, Mark's so-called passion narrative, or the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, takes up half of his gospel. Fully half of his gospel is focused it on does, that. Right. And so, so the I think we're meant to understand that for Mark, the way in which people understand who Jesus is is through his death and resurrection. And there's something right. historical about that because. You know, you read all the Gospels, and the apostles, they're just, it's like every time Jesus does something amazing, they're stumped. They're clueless. Who is this man? Right. You know, it's like. It pushes us forward as readers, because we know from the beginning. Right. But but for them, they're constantly clueless. clueless. And it's only 
after the death and resurrection, really kind of only after Pentecost even, that they finally get it. Oh, this, we finally see them out proclaiming the good news. Yeah, this is this Jesus whom you crucified. He's God's son. He's the Messiah. He's our savior. And uh, so there's some historical reality behind Mm -hmm. Mark's theological emphasis. So that's kind of where we go, I think, with gospel studies is we we try to understand what is Mark's unique presentation of Jesus' life? What is Luke's unique presentation of Jesus' life? What is Matthew's unique presentation of Jesus' life? Yeah, I when I when I think about it too, and I think actually in terms of, of Luke, now you have to take the historian in me. <laughs> but you know, when we and, and we have to for me, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, I think of Luke also as Luke the biographer. And that's mm. something we haven't talked about. But Luke the biographer has to start off with having a good story also about Jesus's birth yeah. um, and, and nature of yeah. that birth and that nature uh, and that recognition of of the significance of that birth, um, which would be if we wanted to look at it in terms of a, uh, um, a, a Gentile book, which would be within the same kind of constructs that we would see other ancient biographies of kings. Um, and that's really a historian's take sure. on Luke. Exceptional exactly. births are found a lot in Greco-Roman Absolutely. historical literature. Exactly. Yes. So that yes. would be, again, he's our master writer. We did such a good job today tying him into why this, why this is um, consistent with the Hebrew scriptures, and and yet he's also able to make it significant to a Gentile reader as well. And I would say, I would say that's true. I um, I would say that that Luke. He knows he's speaking to the church. He knows he's speaking to the church that's primarily in the Gentile world. He knows that he's speaking to a church that's that's con- composed of both Jewish people and Gentile people. Um, and so I and I think that there are scholars who have who have pointed out how Luke how Luke's writing uh, resembles some literary conventions in Greco-Roman literature of the day. I maintain, I think still, even though Luke's Greek is different, and even though I would say, yes, Luke does um, mimic some of those literary conventions, I, would, I maintain that the most important influence on Luke's gospel is the, is the Septuagint. Is the is the Hebrew Bible the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible? Yeah, yeah. I think that. I mean, I I think you proved that today. Yeah. Really, I mean, yeah. in, in just the part that we did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and we have to also understand that biography then was different oh, from biography absolutely. today. Oh, absolutely. That's that's a very important distinction to make. Yes, because it is. It is. W- when we think of biography, we may think of um, of um, was it Carl Sandburg who wrote the six volumes on Lincoln or well, exactly. <laughs> and, well, and and we also tend to th- uh, to associate factual truth with mm-hmm. biography. Mm-hmm. So it becomes the story is less important than what this person did in each phase of their life. Whereas here, yeah, there's more of a shape. It's almost as much about the story as it is about yes. the person. Yes. Yeah. It is. In ancient biography absolutely. was almost as much, and not not almost. It was, it was. as much. <laughs> it was as much about the story as it was about the person. That's the way ancient biographies exactly. were. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly how yeah. it was. So, um, but anyway, I think there's a bit of that there, and that's an interesting thing, at least to think about. And and I think both of us have hit it on the head. 
you can't look at Luke just because he starts off with an infancy narrative as an assumption that it's a modern day biography. And a lot of people right. try right. to make our gospels into modern they day biographies. They are not. They are scripture. They are scripture. They are yes. theological yes. messages. They are they are proclamation of the gospel. They're called gospels for a reason exactly. because they are pro- proclaiming yes. the good news. Exactly. And and that's the that's the fault with people who try to do some kind of mm-hmm. human proof text with it that try to cl- try to say well it doesn't fit into the exact timeline we can't fit these pieces together because that's not what they do no, that's it's right not, that's not how they're written that's not what they're meant to do they're exactly. not meant to give us they're not meant to give us an encyclopedia article about Jesus exactly they're they're meant to give us an inspired, I would say, theological interpretation of the meaning of Jesus' exactly. life for us as Christians. Yes, yes. <laughs> but we want to, I want to talk about another thing in this that's, well, did Jesus have to be circumcised? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I would say, yes, Jesus did have to be circumcised. But he's God. <laughs> well, he's the son of God. And, and, and theologically, we know he's God incarnate, right? Right. And, and yet, he, I think, I think Luke hits, hits the nail on the head when, when, when the way he, he characterizes Joseph and Mary here. He's born into a specific situation. And in that specific situation, it was the norm to be circumcised because that was what was according to the law of right. Moses. Right. And so, you know, I, I view this... I view Jesus' circumcision in Luke's gospel, I liken it to the story of Jesus' baptism in Matthew's gospel. Because in Matthew's gospel, you know, you have this kind of debate between John the Baptist and Jesus. John says, you need to be baptizing me. I don't need to be baptizing you. And Jesus says, no, let's do this because this is necessary to fulfill fulfill all righteousness. righteousness. So I think that's what we have Luke doing here is he's talking about Jesus' parents, they fulfilled all the law. See, Luke's, Luke knows he's writing. Yeah, he's writing for a church in a Gentile setting, and he's writing for Gentiles, but he knows he's writing for a church that has Jewish roots and has lots of Jewish people living in the diaspora, yes, right? Yes, yes. So there are members of these churches. And so it's, it's going to be important for them that, that, that Joseph and Mary are following the law. They're gonna be, it's going to be important for them that Jesus follows the law. And, and there's really nothing in the Gospels that suggests that Jesus does anything not to follow the law. The one time, you know, when the Jewish leaders press him is on his, his, what he does with the Sabbath. And, right. and, and right. Jesus comes back at them and says, look, you guys have missed the point of the Sabbath. Exactly. You've made it yeah. an excuse not to help people. Right. And what better day to extend the compassion and mercy of God right. than on the than Sabbath, on the Sabbath. Right? Yeah, so. right? You know, I was thinking as I asked that question, and, and I agree 100%, yes. Uh, and, and obviously for Jesus to be fully human in that context, I mean, we can't say, oh, he's, but he's, He's the son of God. We 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 we're gonna change the rules here for his humanity within a context of his society. Well, because because Luke's infancy narratives talk about the significance of Jesus' birth for Israel. Yes, and and so Simeon, Anna, Zechariah, Mary, all of them, they right. sing their songs and in words that are borrowed from Absolutely. the Hebrew Bible. Absolutely, and 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 not just borrowed, but but. The concepts, you know, like the consolation of Israel, that is a perfect summation of the hopes 
that, right. that Deutero yeah. Isaiah and, and third Isaiah had for the people of Israel, the right. constant, that they would be consoled, they would be comforted. And, um, uh, you know, the redemption of Jerusalem, again, that was, that was, that was at the heart of what the prophets saw as the hope for what, what God right. was going to do uh, for his people. So Jesus, who himself is son of God, is fully human, um, is fully God, is um, a prophet. It's, it's, really, it's really pretty awesome, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's important for him to have fulfilled the path yes. that would have been expected for a Jewish absolutely. boy. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, well, I want to shift gears now a little bit because we talked about Anna, and you brought to the table your, your uh, work with, with that uh, part of the, of the passage. And one of the questions I had was, why do you think some people still have a, a problem with a woman functioning in the role of a prophet? What yeah. is up with that? You know, w- one of the problems is, is, of course, the proof texting that we do from Timothy. Mm-hmm. And and this idea that, you know, um, women are to remain silent. First Corinthians. First Corinthians. And, yeah. and, first Corinthians and um, so those texts tend to be more significant um, taken out of context than our examples, and it's really kind of it's really kind of a shame because um, the f- the folks that that buy into that have missed the whole broad call of God. You know, it's it's like they but they because they can pick out something that says that. Well, and they are picking and choosing because even in 1 Corinthians, you've got this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which, by the way, is set in the setting of there are problems in the worship at Corinth. Right. And and apparently there's some disruptions going on, and Paul's trying to correct that. But just a few chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul assumes that the women are going to speak in church, and not only does he assume that, he says they should have their heads covered in a certain way out of respect for what probably was the customary convention. I know. And but the women are going to be speaking. these women. He means Junia and Chloe <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Phoebe and all these female. <clears throat> apostles in, in Romans. Yes. Apostles yes. in the church. And here we have Anna as well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when we're looking at something like First Timothy, you're looking at, um, first of all, um, a letter that's really an intimate letter, mm-hmm. really talking about how to set up a church, probably within, you know, how do you make this church go within the context of this society with this particular take on the world? You know, one that really does not allow women a voice. Well, okay. So is it the fact that, that a, an elder or whatever has to be the husband of one wife? Is that what they're proof texting there? Or what are they proof texting there? First Timothy uh, chapter two verse twelve. I permit no woman to teach or to oh, have authority yeah. over a man. She is to keep silent. Um, oh yeah. And that's the one they always proof text. And um, again, I think you have to put that into the context of of Timothy. I think you have to put that in the context of that kind of um, patriarchal society at the time, because that is not what we actually see happening in no, the church tradition. No, that's right. So you have this division, and it's not clearly not how Jesus is. How presented in the gospel. Well, Paul mentions a number of his female co-workers. You know, as I said, he, he you know, there's a reference exactly. to Junia as an apostle yep. in Romans. Yep. Um, exactly. There's there there are co-workers in Philippi. There's co-worker. He mentions all these female all co-workers. These. This is a a different situation than I think. What you see is what's actually happening. Well, and I think we should mention there is significant debate as to who the author of First Timothy is. That's true. Um, there are, I think we should note that there are right. problems around right. that. 
Well, I think one of the challenges is, and this takes us to a whole different thing, is you know, um, is is really how we under understand scripture, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, Does every single passage stand as uh, a witness to God's eternal truth that is that is relevant for all time? Right, and that's a huge thing. And yet, if you take that stance and you take these things as little sound blocks, you're going to find all kinds of contradictions. You are, <laughs> and it really doesn't hold up. Yeah. Um, and to me, that that's a real, a real sad way to to look at the scripture that is much is much deeper than that because it's not. It's not designed to be, it's not designed to be a weapon, and it's not designed to be a proof texting thing. No, it's designed to be studied and pondered and prayed over, mm-hmm. and and speaking to our lives. And so when I see when I see huge conflicts between the reality, and and fine pieces of of scripture. I mean, you know when things go against what is wrong. Mm-hmm. You know it's wrong mm-hmm. um, to treat to treat people as underlings. You know it's wrong um, to hurt people. And when you're using biblical text to try to prove that that's okay, then there's something wrong. And I, th- I think what we can say to people who want to read the Bible that way is that, um, okay, the Bible's meant to be read as a whole. We're meant to take the whole witness of Scripture, not just the proof texts that prove our point. And if we look at the whole witness of the New Testament— it does not simply substantiate the idea that women are to be silent because you've got women doing all kinds of things in, in the churches uh, reflected in the new Testament writings. The other thing, so, so the other thing is we have to recognize, I think is that um, the, the, the new Testament was written in a certain historical context and that context shaped it. So, for example, the women having to cover their heads yeah. in First Corinthians. Exactly. We don't know exactly what was going on there, but for some reason there was a cultural convention that was, that, that, that was affecting. And, and Paul right. does not prohibit the women from, from taking an active role in worship. He simply wants to make sure that, that um, they do it in a way that it does that, that what they're wearing or how they're right, dressed or right. what they have on their heads isn't going to get in the way of what they're doing in worship. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Did, um, you know, if you look at like some of the, the um, family codes, mm-hmm. you know, that right. seem to be very restrictive, but when you compare them to the <laughs> codes of secular society, they in fact are much more egalitarian. Yes, indeed. And so again, it's putting it into context of, right. of what's going on. This is yeah, quite a- more fair to women and householder members than are any other pieces in the in the broader society so yeah every every household code in the greco-roman world said wives are to submit to their husbands yeah, the other property, only the right? christian ones only the christian ones said husbands were to treat their wives absolutely with with love and respect absolutely there was so again, that it was only the christian ones that introduced that reciprocity exactly yeah. and that's a huge step it's a, that's a huge step and so you're really seeing this vision of a world um but but it's it still is shaped by the people who wrote this at yeah. their time and their and and their constant that and that's where that's it's just important to be aware of um and um well and i think i think i don't know there may have been something about the situation that paul was addressing with timothy if it was paul that that in that setting for women to take a leading role in worship may have been a total hindrance 
Because, you know, if you, if you look at the way Paul deals with, with slavery, for example, Paul, doesn't, Paul never says a negative word about slavery. Um, he assumes slavery because that was simply a, a feature of the, right. of the Greco-Roman right. world. Right. Paul had no power to overturn that. However, and this is, this is, this is one of the things that I, I think is interesting, I think the primary reason the book of Philemon yeah. was included in the New Testament is because there he speaks of Onesimus and he tells him when he sends him back to Philemon, he says, treat him like a brother. Exactly. Which I, lays I the groundwork, exactly. lays the groundwork for, along with, I think, Paul's household codes, they lay the groundwork for overturning, the eventual I, I overturning of the that's, convention of slavery. That's it. They lay the groundwork for overturning those pieces. They allow that historical process to move forward towards the fulfillment of God's kingdom. That's it. So the question is, are we going to follow the flawed uh, human conventions that, that discriminate and, and, and repress people? Or are we going to follow the, the liberty and the freedom and the justice of the kingdom of God? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and bringing us back to Anna. Uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to champion her. Yes, and indeed. Profit. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word.